to the Love Your Story podcast. Today we're talking about a heavy subject and interviewing a 21-year-old woman who is willing to take us into her story on this heavy subject of suicide. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, who is quoting the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, Suicide rates have shot up 46.5% since 1999 in the state of Utah. Every other state in the United States is the same except for Nevada, who decreased 1%. In 2016, nearly 45,000 suicides took place in the United States, more than twice the number of homicides. Among people ages 15 to 34, suicide is the second leading cause of death. If these statistics don't give cause for pause, I don't know what does. Join me now as I interview Megan Borquin and we look closely inside her suicide attempt, how she got there and her advice for others who may be facing the same thing. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. I'm standing still in a daze I'm hypnotized, going numb Every time I try to spell it out And say it right, it's always wrong I feel us thin eyes This empty page Megan was born and raised in Michigan. Her upbringing was far from typical. She grew up with a father in prison and a family with enough trauma to last a lifetime. Her childhood trauma curved her decisions, her relationships, and her outlook on life. She battled with anxiety, depression, and PTSD. When she was 16, she started self-harming, self-medicating, and actively trying to take her own life. After a few failed suicide attempts, she landed in extensive and long-term treatment facilities that ultimately ended up saving her life. Today, Megan is here to speak with us and share her story about those experiences and how she overcame them. You turn the page just when I think my favorite song is over. You found the words I couldn't sing. They showed there's more to discover. Without you, the words are lifeless. Scattered lines that feel so mindless. Without you, my story is just pen and ink on a page, just scribble. Megan, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Let's start with a little bit of your history. What do you feel like is the biggest formative thing that led to you wanting to take your own life? I think a lot of it stems from the feelings of not feeling worthy enough, not feeling like my life was going to progress anymore. I had already felt like I had given away so much. So I really do think that it started when I was little and kind of losing my dad and not having him around. Um, That kind of started the feelings of not being wanted, not being good enough. And everything through life had progressed kind of that that same way. I had had that same feeling, um, whether it was not doing well in school and not having that good, loving family life that most people had. Um, So it was just, it all kind of stemmed from not feeling wanted. And then, you know, by the time I was 14, 12, I mean, and up, it just... I didn't feel like my life was going to go or get any better than what it had been. There wasn't anything worth it for me, at least, you know, so I thought that, you know, that it just wasn't a point in suffering any more than I already had. What were the things you were suffering with? Definitely the depression, the having a different family dynamic and not being able to relate to anyone. I definitely had never met anyone that had a dad in prison, um, and especially a dad in prison for what he was for. I mean, he had raped um, one of my family members, and he had used me and my sister as pawns to get my mom to do 
what he wanted and and there just there wasn't a lot of people I could relate to so that created that isolation even more so than what I already felt and with this isolation um what did you do with it where did you feel like you could go where what kind of moves did you make to break out of an isolation I think for me I just reached out to anyone and anything I didn't really care if they were healthy or happy or good influences. I just wanted someone. Um, And luckily I did have a few people. One of my neighbors, she was my best friend. Her family took really good care of me. Um, But I also had found, you know, especially through having technology, found some other negative people and and even connected to negative people through my school um, just so I could feel like I had someone. Tell me some of those experiences in more detail. Um, so there was one individual, he was a little bit older than me and I just kind of wanted someone to love me and it felt like he had that love for me. He kind of played me like a violin. I mean, he, he would convince me of all these things that I was second guessing within myself. Such as? Um, you know, he'd say that he loved me, that he cared about me. He would listen um, to hours on end about my rants, about my family and, and my home life. Um, and he really became a support to me. So I trusted him. I put a lot of trust in him. And I thought for sure that I had made a friend through it all. Um, and he wasn't a friend. He wasn't even really remotely interested in what was going on in my life. He more just wanted to use that for his own benefit. And what was that? What was his benefit? His benefit was to find anyone that could be a victim for him. And I kind of turned into just another person in his life that he could abuse more and push down. And and he used me really badly. And that really messed me up. And I think that is what, you know, turned me towards the suicide route is just being used and abused and and not treated well. I mean, when you already don't treat yourself well in your head to have people on the outside treat you the same way you feel internally I mean that just really proves in a way that that that's what my worth was or so I thought so how did you get um was it hard getting away from him or separating yourself from him yes and no how old were you I was about 16 so I mean it was pretty my mom was getting better I mean she was almost better from the cancer Um, because it had been a few years so she was starting to heal and and my sister was kind of going in a downward spiral and and I was too um it I, I would say it was hard it was hard because he was really all that I had and even though he had caused so much pain and hurt I still kind of wanted him around just so I had someone so it was hard to get rid of him in that aspect mm-hmm. Um, what was the relationship like, if you don't mind me pushing a little farther into that? Was was he someone then that you were dating? Was he someone that, what was that relationship with him like? Yeah, I think in my head we were dating. In my head we were in a relationship. And I think in his head I was just a body. I was just someone to, to use. Um, but I definitely had this kind of fairy tale idea in my head that we were going to live happily ever after and, and that things were going to turn out okay and that I would kind of have him forever, I guess. And when did you know that wasn't going to be the case? He started sexually abusing me, and I think that's when I realized that that's not... I mean, I didn't really know exactly what was happening at the time, but I just knew how I felt, and it wasn't a good feeling. It felt awful, and... I felt even more broken and it just was not that happily ever after in any sort of way. So where did your story lead next? That's when I really started messing around with pills and and whatever I could kind of get my hands on. A lot of them, I mean, most of them were prescribed to me through doctors because I would see therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists all the time. I mean, just in hopes of, you know, something would work, someone could help. Um, So I had this plethora of all these medications that either had bad side effects or didn't work or, you know, and I, and with my mom's, you know, she had medication of her own. And and so you, you come from a wealthy family, correct? Correct. So 
all of the the help that was being lined up. Your your mother also suffers with depression. Yeah. And so there's a a, a hereditary line of um, suicide. I I understand. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. So we've actually had about five people commit suicide in about five generations. Um, so I think, you know, part of this from the get go, I think I was chemically imbalanced. I was predispositioned to, to kind of struggle in the way that I was, but I think environmentally I would have been a lot better off if everything hadn't happened the way that it did. Sure. Absolutely. So coming from a wealthy family, then you had kind of the financial support behind you that, you know, trying to deal with everything with the psychiatrist and the help, this type of thing. So then you've got all these medications at your disposal. Um, and what took you to the place of complete hopelessness of, I, I don't want to be here anymore. I think when your life goes so wrong for so many years, when it's just one hard and horrible thing after another, um, you stop waiting for the other shoe to drop because all the shoes have already dropped and there's just going to be another rainstorm. So for me, there was no, there was no light at the end of the tunnel. That wasn't something that I had ever seen. So for me, it was, you know, I had nothing else to give to the world. I had given it all away through my failed relationships. I had stressed myself out so much that I just wanted to, to take pills just to get through the day. Um, and then, you know, home life wasn't going the way I planned in school life. I, people weren't always treating me that well. And I was failing a lot of my classes. And I just didn't see life getting better. I didn't see an escape. I didn't see any other way to cope than just saying goodbye. And to me, goodbye was something that felt all too familiar. Goodbye was going to be the easiest route. How do you think that your peers and other youth today, why do you think that um, suicide is so prevalent? I think a lot of it is, you know, society wants to put a Band-Aid on a really huge issue, whether it's just prescribing a med in hopes that it'll just make you happier. Um, And I think we're ignoring the true you know, issue or the culprit of it all. And I think that's, first of all, ourselves, we're our worst critics and worst enemies. And, and then you see things like social media, um, that definitely can bring you down. You see these picture perfect lives. And I mean, even my social media looked incredible. I would go on all these trips like Italy with my family, but that wasn't at all what my life was like. I mean, what was really happening behind the scenes when you were in Italy? So in Italy, I almost got sent to a psych hospital, actually. (laughs) Um, And I actually had gotten accidentally drunk um, one night at, we were just on this like group travel thing. So yeah, we would fight in our hotel room. We would scream. And the other, you know, people within our group the next morning were talking about all the screaming they heard the night before. And little did they know it was us. And we kept it our secret that we were the ones yelling and screaming. I remember my sister threw something at me and I threw something back. And, but you know, on social media, I had these photos. I mean, I was in Italy. I mean, what a, what a cool trip to be on. Which like you say is so prevalent, right? Like social media. Yeah. You really see, and you know, some people are honest and there's a There's, but really we're posting things that are fun that, you know, look what I did. This is cool. And, and that support the reputation that you want people to have about you. And often those are the things that, that look really positive. So there's that space of comparison. You're saying that that makes it really hard because our real lives do not look like the social media lives. And we think that we're, our lives are inferior to what's going on around us. Yeah, Uh, entirely. So I think social media has a huge part to play. And I also think just the lack of support from people around us. We're so afraid of judgment. You know, of being honest and being vulnerable, that's the hardest thing you can do. And when you're honest and you're vulnerable and the people around you, whether they don't know what to say about it or they don't know how they can help, I mean, that's just isolating in and of itself. Um, so I just think society, we just have to be better at being vulnerable and being real and stop hiding behind this image of what life should be like and you know that's just not real I mean depression is something that so many people struggle with yet no one really talks about it Uh, why do you think the like I've noticed 
and I'm sure everyone else has too, that the anxiety is so, so high within our culture, and particularly within teens. The statistics show that anxiety within teens, and even there's statistics with, with teens and technology that increases the anxiety within the teens, right? Yeah. And that comes to comparison. I think it also comes to always having to be on call, like you're you're always real-time front and center with everybody you know has access to you i'm sure there are lots of reasons for it um also you can access a lot of dark things yeah. through your media um but all of this anxiety this gosh this whirlwind of anxiety has to have some role i would suspect in the increased levels of suicide what do you think I think wholeheartedly that that's true. I mean, even look at politics right now. Everyone thinks that we're doomed. You know, it's the end of the world and and media is covering all the negative things that are going on. And I think that doesn't help anyone that's already feeling suicidal, that already wants to end their life, to not feel like there's hope within society. I mean, let alone yourself, but society. Um, I think that's a huge, I mean, that's just negative in and of itself. And I also think about, you know, body image people post these beautiful photos and bikinis and I guarantee half those people are sucking in but you know we don't think that (laughs) we never think that we just think that their body looks like that all the time we don't you know so I just think that anxiety of you know the media covering the bad things the end of the world um how you should look how your life should look yeah it's just negative it's not true um there's no I mean, everyone wants to be this cookie cutter one thing or another. You know, there's this perfect idea of of what life should look like. And rarely does anyone fit that mold. I mean, a lot of people have the idea they're going to get married at a certain age or, you know, they're going to lose this weight after they have a baby or I mean, whatever it is. And when you don't, you feel downright horrible about yourself. See, and that's what this podcast is about, is the love your story, that life is messy, that everybody (laughs) has and everybody has a different kind of mess. right? Yeah. Um, sometimes your mess looks like mine where you end up with divorces that, you know, that's not what I pictured when I was young, you know, or you end up, you know, when you came down here, you weren't expecting, um, you know, to end up with parents that were in prison or, you know, any of the things that happened to you. But then what happens for all of us, and this is important to remember is it's okay that we have messy spaces because I think we're all trying to do the best that we can at any given point. We're trying to deal with it with whatever tools we have. We're making the best decisions that we can. And sometimes they're still really bad decisions, but we're doing what we can do. So that messiness is a universal thing and accepting that and accepting our own messiness is really, really key to loving your story. And then we get to the empowerment part of you get to choose. You get to choose the people you're around. You get to choose the attitudes that you adopt. You get to choose whether you're listening to the end of the world stuff or whether you're surrounding yourself with people of light and positivity and creating the stories inside your head, whether like you're talking about body image, I think that's a really great point. Um, There's an earlier podcast specifically, it's called Body Talk, and it's about body image where we can beat ourselves up because of the culture that we live in. And there are cultural expectations for sure, or we can go to a space of realization of how much illusion there is around body image and also around loving the fantastic bodies that we have. You know, that we're healthy, that we can walk, that we can hike, that we can get out, that we can do things, that we can hug, that we, you know, (laughs) that we can listen and hear and smell and interact with people and that we are here and we can create whatever we want. And that's where the empowerment of your story comes from is being okay, learning to love your story, whatever that past messiness is, and then being able to actively create the story you want moving forward by who you surround yourself with and, and what mindsets you choose and which stories you tell yourself what advice do you have for teens or young adults or maybe older adults who are in this same situation of having messy life stories, not having come to a space of knowing how to accept them or deal with them because they're complex um, and that hopelessness? You know, what kind of lifelines did you find? I'm standing still, 
in a daze I'm hypnotized, going numb Every time I try to spell it out And say it right, it's always wrong I feel us thin eyes This empty page I'm sorting through So for me, I was able to find people that lifted me up that really pulled me out of of the negative space that I was in um, my best advice is to acknowledge that we're all a little bit broken I have never met anyone in my entire life that said that they're whole or that they're perfect and that their life has gone you know the way that they planned you turn the page just when I think my favorite song is over you found the words I couldn't sing they showed there's more Um, so feeling broken, I mean, that's not always a bad thing. I think that's realizing where you're at and where you can get better and where you can improve. Um, and really being honest about where you're at. I fell into the trap of of hiding my life, of, you know, only portraying the good stuff. And, and in, in turn, I just felt more and more isolated because I wasn't honest. And I truly believe, I mean, as soon as I started opening up, and letting people in. There were people there to help me. Um, and a lot of, you know, the life I have now is so much different. I mean, I just imagine if I would have died when I wanted to, all the stuff I would have missed, all the things that I've done um, the past six years, you know, I've done so much and I've met so many people that have changed my life that I owe everything to. And that all came down to being honest and wanting to change. You have to to want to make some choices um, and they're not going to be easy they're, they're going to kick you in the butt some days and they're going to hurt because you're going to have to acknowledge the pain that you've been through at some point I mean you can't run forever um, but overall it'll create a life that you're proud of at least that's what I've done and I just really can't imagine my life anything any way different you know The next begins And when I've reached the end Do you want to take us to that story of where you were and what your suicide attempt looked like and then give us um, a little bit of a view of how you got out of that? Yeah, so I was 16, and I was actively trying to kill myself, and my last attempt was the worst. Um, I had just made just a different concoction, and one of the meds I was on, I took 2,000 milligrams. I mean, in that, you would think that would kill someone, <laughs> um, and it didn't. So I woke up, and I was super sick, and um, around that same time, I'd actually had kidney surgery, so that made it equally as bad. I'd lost my kidney because I had a massive tumor on it, um, and I think... If everything else isn't enough, she yeah. has a massive kidney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, life was just crazy, and, and I woke up, and I just... I was really mad, first of all, that I had survived. I mean, that I was so pissed because I couldn't even kill myself right. You know, there was just one more thing to the list that I couldn't do right. Um, and my family was obviously aware of what was going on, and, and I had to go to treatment. I mean, I had been in therapy since I was five or six years old, consistently every week, sometimes multiple times a week, and, and I needed something more. Um, and... Luckily, my family was able to afford a wilderness program, and I went to wilderness, and it was really hard, and I got So what's trained. a wilderness program? So a wilderness program, essentially you're taken away from your family, and you're sent to the middle of nowhere with very little to survive. I mean, you get the bare minimum, um, and you do therapy in the middle of nowhere. And ironically, I feel like nature did more than the therapy sessions where a therapist would come out once a week, but... I had to get away from the environment that I was in in order to heal. I wasn't going to heal, you know, staying in that environment, being surrounded around people that had no problem hurting me. Um, so wilderness was kind of, I mean, that was the start to people saving my life, to people helping me out and hearing me. Um, so, so you I, were kind of tricked into getting there, right? Yeah. So there's two options in how you get to wilderness. You either go willingly or you get what we call gooned. 
And that means that your parents hire two men, sometimes women, to pick you up in the middle of the night. And they will drag you out of your house and put you in a car and get you to the airport and get you to wherever your wilderness program is. Um, My mom took the cheaper route and she tricked me into thinking I was going to summer camp. And my response is get me, you know, the heck out of here. You know, I, I couldn't wait to leave my mom. And so I went willingly. And once I got, you know, me and my mom flew to Nevada. That's where we were supposed to meet the people that were going to pick me up um, at baggage claim. And I didn't say a word to my mom on the whole flight. Like I was so excited to leave her. And I finally get to base camp is what they call it. I'm her base, and I was I had to do a strip search, and that's when I realized I was not going to camp. <laughs> this was not Disney. Yeah, land. I was like, shoot, this isn't any camp I've been be to. <laughs> yeah, so it was. It all started with that really embarrassing and uncomfortable strip search, and then they took everything I owned. I wasn't even allowed to bring a hair tie into the field um, out of fear that you know, you would bring in drugs or, you know, whatever. I mean, a lot of different kids go to the program I was in. A lot of them are avoiding going to jail. It was kind of their way out of getting a sentence. Um, and so you were sleeping on tarps and had food rations and yep. um, re- pretty rough group of girls that was out there. Yep. <laughs> and how long did it take before you, um, or what was it like? This were you just meditating in the back country or was there games playing play, toss the what? um it was it was a lot of hiking that's what we would do most of the day was hiking and setting up camp and taking it down um we would every day we would separate from the group you know the staff would put us separate from everyone else and we could journal Um, The program also offered school credits, so you could actually do some schooling. I think I got four credits from that three-month span I was in wilderness. Um, So every day we'd have some alone time to really reflect. Um, We would have group therapy as well, and we would constantly talk about our feelings. We would always, I mean, any girl could call a group, we would call it. So you just say, all right, calling it or you know group time and and we'd all have to sit there and listen to whoever was you know whatever they wanted to say to us so we fighting oh yeah I actually there was one girl I made really mad and I can't remember what I said I I guarantee it wasn't anything super bad and she wanted to beat the snot out of me so the staff had to restrain her to the ground so we would get in like screaming matches I mean put a group of girls that I've had so many different backstories and um, a lot of different emotional issues in a group, and there's bound to be some fights and some drama. <laughs> so how long did it take before this started being helpful to you? About a month. I was very angry at my mom. I would write letters home just telling her to pull me out of this, and I would complain about you know how hard it was. And, and I think around a month mark, you start to realize you're not leaving, so you better put some work into it and make it worth it. Um, So for me, I just kind of put my nose to the ground and and did what I had to do and started working on my stuff. And I became more vulnerable with the group of girls I was with, which terrified me more than anything. Um, And I was being honest with my therapist about where I was at and where I wanted to be. And how long were you there? I was there for three months. So from August to November. So I got a good taste of the desert heat and the freezing cold. Where were you at by the time you left? Where were you at emotionally and mentally? I was definitely in a much better place. I still had a ways to go, but I was hopeful. I'd kind of gained a little bit more hope for my future. How important is hope, right? It's everything. I mean, if you don't have hope, what do you have? You're not going to get through this life if you don't have a little bit of faith or hope. So I, I think when we're dealing with people who are in these spaces... That really, that's probably the key. And, you know, how yeah. do you give that to any given person is differently. But love always creates hope. Right? Yeah. Vision for the future creates hope. Um, but it's, I think the space where people will take their lives is when they, and I could be wrong. I, you know, I'm, I'm open to discussing this and I'm alarmed by the, the prevalency of the increase in suicide, really concerned about it and aware of it and opening this conversation with you because of it. But um, hope seems to be a key solution. 
How do we provide that hope for people who are in these spaces of depression and anxiety and shame about their stories that, that we can create an opening that lets in enough light that they can move past and actually use the messiness of where they've been, that experience, to gain the empathy and the insight they need to really just blow forward with great force and, and potential for good because they understand so many things that a lot of people who haven't been through the really tough stuff aren't going to understand. Yeah. You know, you will have an ability to understand and connect with people who have done cutting, who have done um, overdosing on drugs, who have been sexually abused, who have um, really tough family situations. And not that we want everyone to have to have those experiences, but you're going to be able to connect with people in those areas that those of us who haven't had those experiences won't truly understand at that same level. And that gives you power and ability to connect and to create good and to empathize um, that, that I think as you move forward in your life, you're going to see really amplify the good that you can do. Yeah, exactly. I, I just think, you know, outside looking in, the best thing you can do is listen to whoever's struggling. Listen. Um, you don't actually have to really provide a whole lot of advice. At least I know that I, any advice given, I never really listened to. I needed to find that motivation within myself. So having someone listen, having someone there when I needed them, I mean, to me, that was where I grew the most um okay so here's a question i know that love really everything comes back to love right when you're in that space of not feeling supported um gosh if we feel loved we're okay we can function from you know we can grow we can if we feel like there's that that secure base somebody to love us yeah um but with that so i have a friend who is not admitting that she's an alcoholic and she is, but she's causing herself a lot of difficulties. She's not letting herself move forward with relationships and with good, um, positive life-building opportunities, like you know, buying a home with her boyfriend and you know, moving forward yeah. in these really positive, building ways. Because she's lying and she's getting caught up in her alcoholism, and she's um, and she comes from spaces like what you, you come from of some abuse and some some hard things that she hasn't sorted through yet in those cases you know where's where's the line between just loving and listening and when you have to say and do things that snap them out of where they're at do you know what I mean yeah I think at that point I mean with that scenario if I've learned anything in all my years of therapy is you can't change someone alone I mean you can love them to death you can love I mean give them all the love that you possibly have and if they don't want it for themselves they will not progress sometimes there's a trial or something you know some really hard and horrible incident or tragedy that will happen that'll kick someone in the butt and be like okay this is you know I've had enough um so I just think loving throughout the entire process and being patient with them you know, I often think about if people gave up on me, you know, in wilderness, they totally could have given up on me. It took me a month to actually do something and they didn't give up. They were consistent. So when does too much loving become allowing? And I say that because her family is used to a lot of addictions and a lot of abuse. And because of that, they are allowing, you know, they're like, oh, you'll get better soon. It'll be okay. And really what she needs is some help. And so they're not, they're not doing any type of intervention um, they're just kind of, you know, loving her and saying everything's yeah. good when in reality, outside of that family space, she's not functioning well. I think tough love, that's where that comes in. You know, I mean, my mom, imagine the tough love she had to show me when she sent me to a wilderness program and had to lie to get me there. I mean, that wasn't easy on her. She put me in hands of strangers and she had no idea if this was even going to work. If I was going to, first of all, survive, I had never done anything like this in my life. Um, and I think that was her way of, of tough love. I mean, she knew I was struggling and she didn't want me to go down the same path she had gone down. You know, my mom had had, you know, an attempted suicide herself, um, before me and my sister were born. And I just think she wanted to break the cycle. So it was tough love. You know, we can't, there's a difference between loving someone and enabling them and we cannot enable someone because then it just shows that they're, you know, it's in a way saying that their actions are okay. 
when it's not. You know, I've I made a lot of choices that, you know, that they'll never be okay. The things that I have said, they will not be okay. But moving forward, you know, I recognize those things and I know that I just don't want to go back to that. So we can't say that everything everyone's doing is all right when it's not. You have to acknowledge that people are going to hurt you. I think you have to tell them that you that they've hurt you. Because um, for me, I mean, that was the biggest kick in the butt is knowing that the whole time I was hurting, I was also hurting other people. And I didn't realize because I was so, you know, caught up in my own pain. I didn't realize the pain I was causing everyone else. So after you got out of the wilderness program, then you went to a boarding school, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I went to a therapeutic boarding school. And that boarding school was really key in launching you into a positive place because of the love you felt there. Wholeheartedly, yeah. I I found family. I found refuge. Um, And, of course, I I hated it in the beginning once again. You know, it's never fun to be told all the things you're doing wrong and to be told that you have to make some really big changes because it's scary and it's hard. Um. But I found, I mean, even now, I've, I've been out of that school. I was there for two years. I've been out for, what, about four years now. And I still keep in contact with those people. Um, one of them has turned into my dad figure. I mean, I, I celebrate Father's Day with him and his family, and that's not a normal thing. A lot of people don't get that, and that's because I was super focused on making relationships that were going to last because I knew what it was like not to have that. So it sounds like what the space that it come came down to, correct me if I'm wrong, but that love is just the healing space. Yeah, there's a saying that love makes the world go round, and I think that that's incredibly true. That's the best thing that we have to offer in this world, whether it be emotional love and, and physical love, but it's that friendship, it's the connections that you make. That will pull you through anything that life has to throw at you more than just, you know, a pill for your depression or an hour therapy session. I mean, if you're loved and you're loving other people, that's your way out. Well, and that brings up a thought that, in my mind, that so often we're like, well, well, I don't know about so often, it's different for everybody, but for people who are in spaces of, I'm not loved, nobody loves me, you know, you're, you're in that woe-be-gone place, um, I think you need to remember that love begets love. If you're not feeling loved, then you need to start loving other people. Reach out, pull people in, love, be vulnerable. I mean, really connect in in selfless ways with with other people because other people want to be loved too. You know, as you as you create those loving relationships with people, that love is reciprocal. So even if you're in the space where you feel like nobody loves me, I can't I can't be loved. Um, you get to do something about that. Yeah. It's within your power to start to love other people, and, and that will change. Yeah, I think our inner voices is the most toxic thing we have. I mean, you just sometimes you have to tell those thoughts to go back where they came from. You know, tell them to go to hell. Um, All the time. They're, yeah. we, talk, we talk about that, the, the power of the stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah. And I really think that that's one of the ends that Satan has into our hearts and minds yeah. is that 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 negative critical voice that sounds like ourself but I really think it's from a source of evil because it's so brutal yeah it it'll drown you if you listen to it so what do you do when yours pops up a lot of times so now I'm I've joined the LDS church so now I'm I'm religious when I didn't have that aspect before um so a lot of times in my head I will tell it to go to hell like I I just get super aggressive with it and I'm just like done um, and other times I just give it to the Lord. I say a prayer and I just distract myself. I'll do something else, you know, cause it's not, and obviously sometimes I'm not perfect. I will listen to those thoughts and I'll get myself, you know, in a little fix and I'll just be sad for a little bit, but I always pull out of it. And I think that's the best thing you can do. I mean, you're going to fall into the trap of listening, um, we all do. You stand up, you fall down. You stand yep. back up again. It's just getting back into the arena every time you stumble. Yep. <laughs> that's that's the process of, yep. of living. <laughs> and living well, too. I mean, there's no shame in the fall downs. It's just the, okay, I'm going to get back up, and I'm going to have learned something from that, and I'm going to get stronger, and I'm going to get stronger, and I'm going to get stronger. Yeah. And pretty soon you notice that the things that were weak are no longer as weak. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
your thoughts on um, where are you going? Where are you moving forward? What do you see that's full of hope for you? And so for me, since leaving my boarding school, you know, that was a really hard thing to do because that was the first place that ever felt like home. Out of all the places, you know, all the times I've moved, um, you know, if I would do anything just to go back to that school. Um, and unfortunately, that's not an option for me. So I hold on to those relationships that I, I made. But I mean, right now what I'm doing with my life, I served uh, a mission for my church um, and I was able to meet even more incredible people and help people by telling my story and and I've come home now and I've just been helping my family you know I think we're all we're all just doing the best that we can at every given moment I think that's accurate for everyone and sometimes your best is different on other days at, at other hours um, but right now you know life is really good I'm working my dream job I work as a vet tech at a nearby animal hospital and I love it you get to love on the puppies yeah and I get to get scratched by some mad kitties but it's all worth it because you know it's what I love and I walk away you know feeling passionate about what I'm doing and you know and I have a relationship with my mom that I never thought that I'd have and I mean for me that's a testament that things can change things can be different that there is light um, at the end, even if you don't see it, it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, and I've just been, I've been living life to the fullest. I mean, even right now we're out in the middle of nowhere in Oregon and we're hearing buzzing around us from the bees and the mosquitoes and the twigs breaking in the distance from whatever wildlife is nearby. I mean, this is the life that I was meant to live. It just didn't come as soon as I thought it would. Megan and I are sitting in the Wallawa mountain range up in Oregon and we are eight miles deep into the range so there's not a lot of people around and it is beautiful mountain lake just beautiful mountain lake fish jumping in it and we're surrounded by tall pines this is our third day here and it's it's therapeutic it's beautiful it's and this is my first time meeting her too so um, we are sitting in one of the most beautiful places um, and telling stories. Thank you for sharing your story. Welcome. Thanks for allowing me to do that. <laughs> do you have any parting thoughts on anxiety or depression or suicide that you would want to leave the listeners with? Um, yeah. I think, you know, everyone always says you're not alone. And it goes back to that inner voice. Not to listen to the voice that you're alone. I mean, look at I mean, whatever age you are, you've got teachers, you've got peers, maybe you've got coworkers. Um, there's always people around you that can help or that will listen and that they can help you find the help that you need. Um, everyone's so different. So just because one thing worked on someone else, don't give hope or don't give up hope. You know, if it didn't work for you and just keep going, don't give up. Even when it's the easiest route, I mean, don't take the easy route. Because it's, I mean, think about all the people that will miss you. That's what's kept me alive all these years is, is kind of that, that idea that I would break a lot of people's hearts and I would change people and not for the better if I ended up killing myself. I would leave people with an awful feeling. I mean, I've lost one of my friends last year um, in a hiking accident. And granted, it wasn't suicide, but there's still this empty feeling. And we all have to offer so much and we don't know you know we're not told all that we have to offer at every given moment um but well and you know I like that because you know when we were talking about earlier all of your experiences are going to give you things to offer that you don't even realize yet yeah. you know and so when whoever you are wherever you are whatever mess you're caught up in there is that meaning that's going to come there is the purpose that's going to come on the other side of it it doesn't feel like that now I know yeah. <laughs> right the messiness doesn't feel good but there is learning there is growth there is space that takes you beyond who you are now but you have to make it through the tough spaces yeah. and I was telling um, or earlier I was introduced to this 
YouTube video, and I'm sorry I can't remember the all of the names and references exactly. Sitting out here in the wilderness, I don't have access to Google research <laughs> at the moment. Um, but it was, of all of the people who had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge to commit suicide, 12 of them have lived out of the hundreds, maybe thousands that have done it. And of those 12, there's one gentleman that was making this this YouTube video, and he had gone and spoken with the others who had lived through it, the other 12, and all of them said that the minute they had let go of the bridge, that they felt the darkness leave them, and there was instant regret that they had given up their lives. And that was fascinating to me, because it comes back to this voice we're talking about, where I think that evil gets particularly heavy on some of the most beautiful, strongest, fantastic souls, because I think I think Satan attacks them on purpose because he knows what you've got. He knows what role you can play and he wants to take you out, yeah. you know, and that the minute they had let go of that bridge, whatever evil spirits or darknesses were pushing them to do it left because their job was done, yeah. you know, and they, they had got them to leave. They got them to close their story down. They got them to leave this world and now they could move on to the next person. and. While that was not Megan's experience, and I shared that with her earlier, she just felt frustrated that she couldn't take her life. I thought that was an interesting thing to share on this topic of suicide because, you know, you may be one of those people, if you have contemplated it or are contemplating it, that the darkness, the oppression, the, the heaviness that's pushing you to do that may just be an assault upon you that, you know, once you've done it, You'll, you'll have instant regret. You'll, there, there's more for you to do and you need to hang in there. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have regret now, even though I didn't then, you know, waking up, I was really angry, but now I regret even trying. I regret that, you know, that I decided to give up. Um, so there's definitely regret either way, I mean, whether it's the moment after or if it's years down the line. I don't think anyone's ever proud that they tried to take their life. That's not really something you should be proud of because um, it's, you know, it's a hard thing to do. It's not an easy decision to make, um, but there is, there is light. There's always light. And sometimes you just have to keep going and you have to find it for yourself and you have to hold on to it. And that's my, my best advice for anyone that's listening that wants to take their life or that knows someone that's contemplating it or thinking about it. Um, it's just love, love one another, look for the light, be the light, um, and reach out because there's always going to be someone, no matter how dark it is, there is someone. Um, and yeah, that's my, my parting advice. (laughs) You know, one of the things about stories is we, and we talked about the story archetypes, but one of them is the Herald and the Herald is the story character that shows up at the crossroads, that shows up to give you the the magic elixir or the gift you need. Maybe it's a book, maybe it's a website, maybe it's a hug, maybe it's a smile, maybe it's a a relationship of, you know, like the father figure relationship that came to you. Maybe it's the person that calls you right before you're about to commit suicide and stops it, you know, but these heralds do show up. Believe that they show up. Believe that you can be those for other people when you feel a prompting to do something follow through with that we're all so intimately connected and those spaces of hopelessness you're thinking nobody's there for me or there's there's no love or I'm so dark and you're just trying to survive but there people will show up pray reach out try to create love ask for help and do things you know step forward yeah and I also think that acknowledging the little things that you've done I know with depression it can feel like you know brushing your teeth is takes more effort than anything else on the planet and acknowledge the little things that you've done because those are accomplishments especially when we're talking about depression and anxiety I mean your threshold um, for what you can do it can be or feel so limiting but I just applaud anyone that got up I mean that's enough you know that you don't have to run a marathon you don't have to save someone's life you know you don't have to do these incredible and crazy things to be of value to someone in this life if you got up that is enough and just hold on to the little things until just until you can you know (laughs) I have this I call it success file 
and I do it at the end of the day and it's it's a play on successful right but instead of looking at all the things I didn't get done I look at the things I did get done but I count everything like I'm like I got out of bed today yay <laughs> I put my makeup on yay <laughs> I got dressed yay and and I don't deal with depression um you know, of course I have down times, but I, I'm not, I don't have chemical depression to deal with, but still, even those, sometimes that's just like, that's a good day. I didn't wait till one o'clock to shower. Yeah. <laughs> you get credit or you deserve credit, you know, celebrate everything and, you know, success file it all. Yeah, exactly. A special thanks to our sponsor today, Madeline Page. She was one of the top 20 finalists in season six on NBC's The Voice. She has let us use music from her album, Anymore. We'll close up the episode today, and I, by no means, any of the suggestions or things that we've talked about, it's just opening a conversation. It's not knowing the answers to everything. Um, talking with people who have experience and stories um, like we have today and me interjecting ideas and thoughts it's really opening a conversation so if you or someone you know have ideas or thoughts or stories that you want to add to this conversation you can reach me on the website at www.loveyourstorypodcast.com and we can continue to delve into this further as we explore these concepts and how to combat them and how to support and love people that are in the dark places and how to find our way forward in our own lives with more hope and more light. So um, thank you for being here today and thank you for listening to the Love Your Story podcast. Share this episode with anybody you think that it would help. Um, Share the love, people, and we'll see you on next week's episode. Thank you.